Thank you, Reed. Well, this morning we are continuing our uh, sermon series that is entitled On Marriage. If you have been here, uh, you know we have looked at Moses on marriage from Genesis chapter 2 and Solomon on marriage uh, from the wisdom literature. And today we are looking at uh, Jesus on marriage from Matthew chapter 19. Uh, by the way, if you were here on uh, last mm, two or three years or so when we were in Mark's gospel, uh, you may uh, this may look uh, you may recognize this passage. Uh, Mark chapter ten and Matthew nineteen are almost identical. In fact, they're so close. Some scholars think that Matthew copied Mark. I think that maybe Mark copied Matthew, but I won't get into that whole subject at this point. So, nevertheless, it may look familiar because these two passages are almost uh, identical. We read verses 1 through 12, but we're going to focus our attention on verses 1 through 9, so you have the text there in front of you. In 1999, a small town in New Jersey held a poetry contest. The winner of the age 9 to 13 category was a little girl who wrote a poem entitled, The Monster. It's quite short. Here's what she wrote. The monster's here, the monster's there. The monster is just everywhere. In my milk and in my tea, doesn't it ever think of me? Mom is here, Dad is there, and I am just not anywhere. How can I say this without much force? The monster is what I call divorce. Few things can be as devastating in the life of a child like the pain of seeing their parents go through divorce. Some of you in this room can identify with that poem. You have felt that monster lurking in the closets and shadows of your own life and your own upbringing. And from a child's perspective, we can understand why divorce is a monster. Intuitively, it's even as if kids know that this is not supposed to happen. That it's not what God intended. And that's precisely what the message of our text is this morning from Jesus that we read a moment ago in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus reminds us that in most cases of divorce, it is a monstrosity of rebellion against God's creation. And yet, we have to be honest, it's become so common that many of us are numb to it, that even as Christians, as the church, it's no longer scandalous for rich and famous and powerful people to be divorced even multiple times. We think, oh yeah, well, people make mistakes. We, we don't even call it divorce, we call it splitting up, going their separate ways. And we have found ways to, to minimize and to soften it and make it easy. In fact, I learned this week that you can even start the process of filing for a divorce by using an app on your phone. It's become so commonplace. This may be hard to believe, but in the first century, in Jesus' day, divorce was just as normal then as it is today, and in some cases it was even easier then than it is today. But Jesus is going to remind us in Matthew 19 that just because something like divorce is normal or easy, 
it doesn't make it best. And Jesus' words here are sobering. I can sum up these nine verses with just three words. Jesus discourages divorce. That's the the main point of this passage. If you don't get anything else, hear those three words. Jesus discourages divorce. Now, I know we're in a cultural moment, and we uh, as Christians and, and many are battling for the sanctity of marriage on many different fronts. But my friends, can I ask you a question? Why should we expect the world to take marriage seriously if the church is unwilling to take divorce seriously? When was the last time you, just in a Baptist church, saw an unbiblical divorce brought forward as a matter of discipline? People say, oh, it's none of your business. Two Christians making a vow before God that's officiated by a pastor is none of our business? I'm pretty sure that's exactly our business that God has called us to. And we should not be silent where the Bible is not silent and the Bible is not silent on the topic of divorce. And Jesus in this text is quite clear why why he discourages it. There's three reasons we'll see in a moment, but let's notice where the passage begins in verse 1. It says, When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. There's a lot of geography there, but let me just just give you a quick lesson in, in geography. The Sea of Galilee is here. You've seen it on lots of maps. That whole Galilean region was Jesus' stomping grounds. Flowing out of the Sea of Galilee is the Jordan River. And so Jesus has been ministering here, but he moves southward. And if you look closely there, he actually moves on the eastern side of the Jordan River. He's beyond the Jordan. And this region geographically was ruled by a man by the name of Herod Antipas. Now, if you don't know Herod Antipas, go later and read Matthew chapter 14. Because Herod Antipas was the man who killed John the Baptist. And do you remember why He killed John the Baptist because John preached a blistering sermon on the sanctity of marriage. John said to Herod, your marriage or your divorce and remarriage was a sin. And that's how the fearless John became the headless John. So this is the region they're in. And all throughout Matthew's gospel, the Pharisees, who we'll meet in a moment that we've read, they've been repeatedly trying to discredit Jesus. In fact, notice verse 2 says, large crowds followed him. In both Matthew and Mark's account, it's an odd word here. Everywhere Jesus goes, there's a crowd in this town, a crowd in this village, and a crowd in this city. But here in verse 2, it's a crowd of crowds. It's like the biggest crowd yet, conceivably. And it's as if the Pharisees know this, and they know where they're situated geographically, and they're trying to to, to get Jesus and trying to catch him. And so verse 3 says, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Notice in verse 3 that Matthew not only gives us the Pharisees' question, he also gives us the Pharisees' motives. This is not a sincere question. It's like when my kids ask me, Dad, do we have the ingredients to make pizza? 
That is a trap <laughs> that they're trying to lure me into. Well, guess what? This question here, it says there, they were trying to ensnare him. They want Jesus to go on the record. They want to, to have his words down, hoping that maybe the crowds would turn on him or that maybe word would get back to Herod and maybe Herod would do to Jesus what he did to John. And this is their chance. And so what Jesus says here about marriage is going to have social and theological and political implications. And by the way, brothers and sisters, whenever we go on the record speaking about marriage, realize it's going to have those same implications today. And we must have the courage and the boldness of Jesus to stand on God's word. Notice they asked the question, is it lawful? My kids were confused by that. They were thinking in terms of the U.S. law. And I said, no, 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 this is about the law of Moses. And I told my children the other night as we read this text, I said, remember, something can be legal in the eyes of Uncle Sam and still be immoral in the eyes of God. We, this is why as Christians, we do not build our ethic from the Constitution down. We build it from the Bible up. And so Jesus takes them back to the Scriptures and stands on the authority of Scripture. And in the process, he discourages divorce. Three clear reasons. Number one, in verses 4, 5, and 6, he discourages divorce because it violates the permanence of marriage. Jesus discourages divorce because it violates the permanence of marriage. Notice verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read? Now just pause right there. Man, that had to sting just a little bit. When Jesus said those words, that's like saying to a movie critic, Have you not even seen Gone with the Wind? Like, that's what movie critics do, is watch movies. This is what Pharisees do. They read the Old Testament. This is their full-time job. But my friends, it's a good reminder to us, it is not enough to be familiar with the Bible. We are called to be committed to the Bible. And so Jesus says, have you really taken this to heart? I know you've read, I know you're familiar with it, but have you not really grappled with what God's Word says? By the way, his answer, if you zoom out for a second, verse 4, 5, and 6 is a great case study in how to build a biblical worldview. Watch what he does. In verse 4, he quotes the Bible. In verse 5, he quotes the Bible. And then and only then in verse 6 does he give you his conclusion. You don't start with an idea or start with a feeling and then go find a verse to back it up. If anything, you start with a verse and from that verse you find your ideas. And so Jesus says, well, let's look at what Scripture says here. Let's look at what Scripture says here. Well, therefore, the conclusion is this. And he stands on the authority of God's Word. And so he quotes for them two passages. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? The, the way to win a debate with a Pharisee or any rabbi, was to establish precedence. They always love to try to quote the older rabbi, the older teaching. And so their question of lawfulness, as we'll see in a moment, is rooted in Deuteronomy 24. So they say, hey Jesus, let's talk about divorce from Deuteronomy. 
And Jesus brilliantly says, uh-uh-uh, let's talk about marriage from Genesis. He takes him back to the beginning and says, look at the, the purpose, the intention of what marriage is supposed to be. Jesus specifically quotes Genesis 1.27, and then in verse 5, Genesis 2.24. By the way, if you want to know why he quotes Genesis 2.24, I will point you back to my sermon a few weeks ago on Genesis 2.24. I'm not going to re-preach 13 points uh, today. Whew! All right, go back and watch it. This passage, uh, the, the, the DNA, the genetic code of marriage is written in a Genesis 2.24. Everything that we need to know is written right in that verse. And that's why Jesus goes back to it, because that's the cornerstone passage. It speaks of gender and sex and children and family. It's all there. So he says, let's go back to the cornerstone. So having quoted that, he, he goes about then establishing precedents, starting with Genesis. By the way, that's how we go about thinking about marriage. You don't start with love and then figure out marriage. You start with creation and figure out marriage. Jesus says, go back to what God, the creator, made and put into place and think his thoughts after him. And so he draws his conclusion based on those two texts, verse 6. So they are no longer two, the man and wife, the husband and, and, and wife, the, the man and woman, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He, he focuses on the one flesh union. He says that the fact of the two flesh is now becoming one flesh. He says that that is intended to be permanent and to, to take the two fleshes that are one flesh and to pull them apart is as grotesque as taking one flesh and ripping it apart. It's, it's not what it's intended. And it's actually, a, 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 in that case, he's saying here that it's, it's unnatural to rip it that way. I think Tim Keller does a great job here describing divorce in the terms that Jesus gives here as being something as radical as an amputation. To amputate a limb is not something a person does lightly. Imagine a doctor who, who overprescribes it, going, oh, you got a hangnail? You should amputate your hand. You got bunions? You don't like what your feet look like? Why don't you amputate your feet? That's crazy, right? A doctor like that would go to jail. And yet, how many counselors and therapists and psychiatrists and even pastors who are over-prescribing divorce, it's the solution. Jesus says, no, do you, do you realize what the one flesh union is? The, the only reason you should do that is because it's, it's, there's no other alternative, as he's going to describe. God's original goal for marriage should be our daily goal for marriage, and that is one of permanence, rock-solid dependability. I had a, a pastor friend who, when he would do premarital counseling with couples, he would always buy them a wedding gift at the end. And he always bought them something that was both useful and symbolic for the couple. And he bought every couple the same gift. You know what he bought them? He bought every couple an old-fashioned iron skillet. You know, those like 30-pound skillets your grandma has. And, the, and he would say, this is what your marriage should be like. Dependable, strong, unbreakable. You can drop it, all, you can kick it off. It doesn't go anywhere. It's always there. 
He, he, would, he would tell them and say, we've got too many Tupperware marriages. We need more iron skillet marriages. That's what Jesus says here. That's the call of this passage. Marriage is itself a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And so what does divorce do? It, it, it shows a violation not only of God's design and creation, but let's be honest, it also portrays a false gospel. It teaches us that one day Christ might wake up and tell the church, I have found a prettier bride. And he moves on. How devastating is that prospect? But it's not a prospect for us because you know why? Because Jesus' commitment to the church is based upon the vow that he himself made, and lo, I am with you always. Permanence. That's what God's design. And that's why Jesus discouraged it, because it violates that permanence. Number two, he discourages divorce because it stems from hard-heartedness. It stems from hard-heartedness. Notice verse 7, that the Pharisees aren't done. So they said to him, Then why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, these guys aren't going away without a fight, so they, they throw some law back at Jesus. Which, by the way, there's two mistakes in verse 7. Do you see them? First of all, it's never a good idea to try to use the law against the lawgiver. That's not going to work out very well for you, all right? But second of all, notice they said, why then did Moses command? They choose their words carefully, and in response, Jesus is going to choose his words carefully. The only thing worse than being ignorant of the Bible is being dishonest with the Bible. And they're being a little bit coy here, wrangling about with words, because they're taking what was a concession, and they try to turn it into some blanket command. And Jesus is, is, is very aware of what they're doing. Now, to understand what's happening here, you got to just, let's think about the law in, in other terms, all right? Uh, think about a, a very, uh, Exodus chapter 22. There's a law that says, if somebody steals your ox... Uh, Exodus 22 says you got to pay back an ox and then make some kind of restitution, right? So there's these, there's these provisions, these guidelines. What do you do in this case study if somebody steals your ox? And Exodus 22 is quite clear. You do this, this, this. There's a whole legal process, okay? Exodus 22 is not God's way of saying it's okay to steal. Because he just said in Exodus 20, thou shalt not steal. So why do we have Exodus 22 if he already gave us Exodus 20? The answer is because our holy God is also a realistic God, and he knows that sinners will steal stuff, and he is compassionate towards the victims, and he wants to provide some degree of protection for them. And without those penalties and processes, the nation of Israel would have devolved into some post-apocalyptic anarchy. Every man just doing whatever he wants, stealing what he wants. God said, don't steal, but we stole, and there's no recourse. And in this passage, the certificate of divorce was God's way of minimizing the effects of the fall. He doesn't want it to happen. But he knows sometimes it does happen. And so he gave a process. But by the way, don't believe people who will tell you the God of the Bible is misogynistic. 
This whole certificate of divorce was largely designed because in the ancient world, women were often the victims of divorce being used and abused. Moses, or excuse me, God did not want there to be a bunch of wife swapping going around, so he established this legal recourse to deter its practice, to protect the innocent, and to establish law and order in the nation. So God was not commanding it in Genesis 20, Deuteronomy 24. He was regulating it. He was controlling it. And so Jesus knows this. So notice his response in verse 8. He said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But, notice, from the beginning, it has not been this way. Again, Jesus takes them back to Genesis. Notice there, though, he says, why, why did they want to do that? He says, because of your hardness of heart. He said that divorce clause exists in Deuteronomy because the blackness of sin exists in your families and marriages, and that's because it exists first and foremost in your hearts. And God recognizes that. This hardness of heart would have, again, this would have been a, a real stinging statement by Jesus because who's the who's the prime example of a hardness of heart in the Old Testament. Pharaoh. He says, you're acting like Pharaoh who rebelled against God. And this is not so much even hardness of heart against each other. It's really about God and His commands. It's growing callous towards what His Word says in favor of doing whatever it is that you want to do. And so Jesus says, ultimately, the problem is not your law, and it's not your marriage, and it's not your husband, and it's not your wife, it's your heart. And so often that divorce, it, 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 that, that desire for divorce is a way to avoid dealing with the real issues, which are selfishness, jealousy, envy, bitterness, and so many other issues. Jesus said, what defiles a man is not what's on the outside, it's what comes from the inside. That's where these things come from. There was a New York Times bestseller a few years ago by a husband and wife author. And in the book, they said these words. They said, quote, letting go of your marriage, if it's no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you've ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step it can be a personal triumph. That sounds empowering and it sounds reassuring, but Jesus says it's hardness of heart. By the way, a hardened heart doesn't require a furrowed brow. It doesn't require folded arms. A person can walk around with a hardness of heart with a smile on their face and say, man, I'm just being true to me. I'm just, I'm just living my best life. I'm just living my truth. I'm just doing this. But my friends, just because it pleases you doesn't mean it pleases God. According to Jesus, the problem ultimately is the problem with the heart. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ has come to what? To give us a new heart. To remove the heart of stone. And there are some of you, maybe you've been married for years and your heart is feeling calcified towards your spouse. My friends, the call of this passage is not let your heart to get harder and harder and harder, but to hand it to Christ that he might soften it. And that he make your heart new to beat with love and compassion that only he can give. 
The third and final reason we see in this text is in verse 9, number 3. Jesus discourages divorce because it can lead to further sin. It can lead to further sin. Notice verse 9. And I say to you. Now that is so critical. Again, most rabbi debates, the way they won the debate was by quoting Scripture and by quoting another rabbi. And so they would try to say, what is divine, what is the Word of God, what does divine authority say? So they'd say, Isaiah said, Jeremiah said, Ezekiel said, Moses said. Now Jesus comes along and puts himself in the same category and says, now I say to you. He speaks with the authority of God himself and says, if you understand what I'm telling you, this is the word of God. And what is that word? And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Jesus' conclusion here is both biblical and pastoral. Notice it's biblical because it's in step with what Moses said in the Old Testament law. It's also pastoral because he recognizes the collateral damage of sin and recognizes the, the situation for the exception that he gives. He says, except for immorality. This is what most scholars point out as one of two exception clauses for divorce in Scripture. You can see the insert in the bulletin that I wrote. I deal with it a little bit more there. But by the way, the, the, the assumption here uh, of divorce for adultery... That was nothing new. When Jesus said that, that wasn't a surprise. Everybody agreed, Jews, you know, in this that divorce was a permissible ground, or excuse me, adultery was permissible grounds for divorce. You know why? Because the penalty for adultery was stoning. And so divorce was merciful. It was lenient. And it was recognized to be a gracious a gracious act. But Jesus says, except for immorality. This is a general word for sexual sin. If you're curious, this would include everything listed in Luke, uh, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 18, where God forbids adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, and other sexual sins. Sexual intimacy is the fullest expression of the one flesh union. And Jesus says to, to go and to join to a, another person that you're not married to is to violate and to nullify that union. And is essentially saying that, that adultery kills the covenant. And so he says in that exception, it's, it's, it's not immorality, it's not adultery, but apart from that exception, he says, the person that marries another woman now commits Adultery. By the way, adultery was a serious word to them then. And, it, and, and, and they understood that. They knew the Ten Commandments and they knew the Seventh Commandment said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. That was not new to them. But here's the interesting thing. They agreed with Jesus that adultery was an abomination. They did not agree with Jesus what adultery was by definition. Adultery was defined as being unfaithful to your spouse. But by this point in the culture, some of the Pharisees and even the, the, the popular Jewish thinking was, some of you have seen that meme, well, you can't be unfaithful to a spouse if you don't have a spouse. 
So they would divorce and then remarry and then divorce and remarry and feel like they never broke the seventh commandment because they were always married. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't you realize that if you remarry, you've committed adultery. And so that definition would have been jarring and even shocking to some that heard him. The culture in that day and even in our day had a broad view of what constituted divorce and a narrow view of what constituted adultery. But Jesus has just the opposite. He has a narrow view of what constitutes divorce and a broad view of what constitutes adultery. In fact, Jesus will go so far as to say in Matthew 5, you don't even have to use your private parts to commit adultery in your heart. It can be with your eyes, with your mind. Jesus raises the bar. He doesn't lower it. He says, this is what it is to be in my kingdom. This is what it is to follow me. So married men and women, how are you doing? Are you guarding your eyes, your heart, your mind, your thoughts? Romans chapter 7, Paul picks up on this and says, if, so then if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, She's freed from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she joins another man. Jesus says, this this is what's on the other side of this. Any other reason that you find out there, except for immorality, and as we see in 1 Corinthians, what is the abandonment clause, except for these two exceptions that Scripture gives, every other person, he says, becomes an adulterer to remarry. That is not how our world thinks. We live in a world of no-fault divorce. We live in a world of quick and easy, as if it's no big deal. And Jesus says, it's not what God intended. By the way, I think verse 9 is Jesus' very shrewd answer to the Herod question. The only reason Herod could marry Herodias was because she divorced her husband Philip. And I think verse 9 is Jesus' very subtle but also direct way of saying, John the Baptist was right. It was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. It was adultery. So what do we do with this whole passage? I'll say a word to two groups. First of all, to the unmarried. If you're here this morning and you're not married, I, I urge you, look, look at the next verse there, verse 10. The disciples said to him, well, if the relationship of the man and his wife is like this, then it's better not to marry. They said, are you serious? You got to be one man with one woman all your life? And the disciples were stumped by this. And Jesus says, not everybody can accept this. Jesus basically says, Know what you're signing up for. Listen to the single people. If marriage is in your future or you, you pray that it is, I urge you, don't wait until marriage to read about marriage. If your relationship is moving that direction, get counseling. Listen to those who've been married. Have your eyes open as much as possible to see what's before you so that you might enter into it as as those vows say reverently, soberly, and in the fear of God. And to to the married here this morning in this room, listen to me, I urge you, some of you, you need to fight 
for your marriage. Don't let it go. Listen to what Jesus says. I think it's a huge mistake that the only time we read our wedding vows is on our wedding day. It's like the first time you buy a car at a dealership when you're like, you know, 20 years old and you go, yeah, I'll sign the dotted line, right? And you never really read the stuff. And then four years later, you're going, am I still making payments on this, right? It's like you didn't realize what you signed up for. But after three or four years, you go, yeah, wait a minute. How much do I still owe? Well, guess what? In marriage on your way, everybody goes, yeah, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. But when you're five years in, and you're 20 years in, and the kids come along, and the job doesn't work out, and the career isn't what you thought, and tension is there, and cancer comes along, and the money isn't tight, boy, that's the time to go back to those vows for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. My friends, I, I, I beg of you, as brothers and sisters, to understand the call that we have to allow our marriages to speak and to make clear the gospel and the love of Christ shown to us. A commitment through thick and thin, despite our sins and flaws and wrinkles and spots, He loves us and He stays faithful to us and He calls us to do the same because what God has joined together, let no man separate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for how it touches on what is a very heavy, personal issue. But Lord, one in which I suspect everyone in this room has encountered in some form or fashion. And so, Lord, we come understanding that not only do you command us to live a certain way, but God, we take comfort in the fact that you empower us to live that way, that you call us to faithfulness in our marriages. And we pray, Spirit of God, that you would help us in our marriages. Lord, where there is conflict between husbands and wives, where, where there, there is distress, where there are difficulties, God, I pray that there would be love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And help each one of us as husbands and wives to confess our sins, to humble ourselves, and to receive your grace as we commit to honor you as husband and wife. Help us towards that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.